Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. try to keep you up to date and in the loop. Uh, almost 200 of you voted last week as we uh, really were hoping you would since uh, we probably need to do some repairs now on the project. Uh, but uh, around 200 of you, uh, about 100 and I don't know, 80, 90, somewhere in there, yeses and one no. So I feel like that's a pretty positive step forward. So thank you for that. And uh, just to kind of keep you going, I mean, I think you can see that obviously this thing started real fast and it's uh, progressing. Uh, just, you know, I'm going to give you a big formal update here in a couple of weeks about everything that's going on. Just keep doing what you're doing. Just uh, keep being faithful. And so many of you made commitments and you're paying on those commitments. And we're already beginning to, you know, make progress and pay out and start the process of this whole project. So, uh, we got a, a big couple of years ahead of us, so we should be in a brand new facility by the end of this year, so it's going to go very quickly. Yeah, uh, you can applaud that, that'd be okay. So uh, keep on keeping on. I, I want to talk a little bit about some practical things today. Paul writes in Philippians 4.19, my God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. My God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I think we make things more complicated than they need to be. I mean, I think generally speaking, you know, we just kind of, well, let me say it a different way. How many of you make it more complicated than it needs to be? Yeah, good. That's a nice show of hands. The, Obviously, the really difficult people didn't raise their hands. <laughs> so let's ask a different question. How many of you are sitting next to... No, no, no. No, let's don't do that. Let's don't do that. <laughs> let's don't do that. <laughs> How many of you know somebody that makes things more complicated than they need to be? Yeah, that's easier. That's, easier. that's less specific, isn't it? I love this, uh, I don't know how many of you know the comedian Brian Regan, but I, I love his little bit. He starts his little bit with this words, I've given up on humanity. And what prompted him to give up on humanity? He noticed that there were directions on the Pop-Tart box. <laughs> the people need some kind of specific directions on how to eat Pop-Tarts. That's... That's a complexity we don't need, isn't it? And then he says, and it's not just that the instructions are on there, but there's more than one step. <laughs> Amen? I mean, who would have known? And it's really on the box. You should look at it sometime. We have this tendency. In fact, we call it scientifically a complexity bias. Human beings have a bias towards complexity. And that shows up in several ways, in several practical ways. In fact, marketing people understand that human beings like you and me, I know none of you have ever done this, none of you online have ever done this, but that human beings will walk into the market and side by side there may be a product that says organic. And you may be able to understand every ingredient in that product. 
And next to it would be a product that sounds very scientific. It has things you can't pronounce. It has, you know, additives that are going to do miracles for you. And you have no idea what it means. The majority of people in the world will pick the thing they don't understand, believing that the complexity will work better than the simplicity. Give you another example. A study was done recently in which several offices were involved in an experiment. And the experiment was a problem that needed to be solved. And the problem could be solved in one of two ways. The problem could be solved with a clipboard, a piece of paper, and a pen by making a list. Or the problem could be solved by downloading a complicated app that would need to be understood, taught, and then help everyone in the office to understand. 90% of people in the study chose the complicated, less efficient app than the piece of paper with a pen and a clipboard. Why? Because we believe that if it's more complex, it's better. If it's more complicated, it's, it's going to do better work for us. And that's fun and games until it gets to our inner world and our spiritual journey. I would guess that if we went around the room, we could talk about those of us who make our inner world way more complex than it has to be. Our thought processes are very complex. Amen? Like, I don't know how many people in this room try to follow a single thread of thought, but it's interrupted constantly by mitigating circumstances. Does that happen to anybody? I'm thinking about, well, but what about that? Well, oh, look at that. And that bleeds into so many things within our, the context of who we are. It, it happens to us emotionally, and it happens to us spiritually, so that we are sort of once removed from a very practical part of this faith in which we share. So we're thinking a little bit about what that looks like and what that means today. My God will supply all of your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus, Confucius said, life is really simple, but we insist on making it complicated. How many know when Confucius lived? Good. That's excellent. <laughs> 2,500 years ago. 2,500. I'm just trying to think what the world that Confucius lived in looked like versus what the world that we live in looks like. But what was true then is true now. Human beings make simple things complicated. Andy Benoit says, most geniuses, especially those who lead others, prosper not by deconstructing intricate complexities, but by exploiting unrecognized simplicities. I wonder how many of us today would say, you know, what I could do with just thinking in my life about maybe letting go of some of the complexities and maybe exploiting unrecognized simplicities. What do I do well? What is it that is working? What is going on for my good and my story and my journey and my life? I don't know how many of you say this, but, but, but one day all my problems are going to be solved and then I'm going to be at peace. I'm just going to get, this is what we say, I'm young, but when I get a little older and everything gets under control and I have enough money, then it'll be peaceful. Can I get an Amen. And all of you folks that have been on that journey are laughing. You know, you're laughing. You're like, yeah, that ain't what happens. <laughs> you get a little more comfortable and you get a little more money and then your head falls off. And, you know, the physical stuff starts happening and it gets crazy. 
How many of us are sitting in space where we really think about the simplicity that's going on? There is a, a theological progression in Scripture, and while the Bible notes it and, and, and takes us on the journey, it doesn't endorse it. So let me give you just a little overview of the simplicity of Scripture. It starts with the covenant, the covenant between God and Abraham. Walk before me and be blameless, and I'll be your God, and you'll be my people, and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. That is a very simple idea. You do the things that are healthy and good for you, and I will bless you and help you and instruct you and guide you and empower you, and together we will change the world for the good. We will bless the world. What a great idea. That sort of is captured then uh, in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, four commandments about how we love God, and six commandments about how we love each other. Really simple stuff. Ten, ten. Most of us, were we to commit to it, could memorize the Ten Commandments. Now, we could recite them, and you would get most of them eventually. <laughs> but whether you could recite them properly or in order. But you know, you know, don't kill, don't steal. You, you know what they are. Out of that, then, we form our first creedal statements. The first creedal statement appears in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. It's called the Shema. It is the core belief statement of the nation of Israel. Everybody with me? Because I'm going to read it to you now. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. I know you've heard that before, but maybe you didn't know that it was the creedal statement of the nation of Israel, of the Jewish people. So then out of the Shema, we, we move into a, a more complex understanding. We move into what we call the Talmud period. And so now what we have is the rabbis beginning to take the Ten Commandments and the Shema and, and, and blow it up into a way of living. They called it building a hedge around the law. So the law were Ten Commandments, and you know you didn't want to transgress any of those, so that's dangerous to live there. So what if we built a hedge around the Ten Commandments that you weren't even going to get close to breaking one of the commandments? <laughs> and then what if we built a hedge around that hedge and a hedge around that hedge? So we have what we know as the Jerusalem Talmud. The Jerusalem Talmud has been developing over centuries of time. It is the effective rabbinic teachings into which Jesus is born. 618 rabbinic laws make up the Talmud teaching by the time Jesus walks the face of the earth. So while the scripture tracks this sort of bias to complexity and this growth, it doesn't endorse it, it starts to make sense then why Jesus says the things he says. He says things like, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I am come that you might have life, and that you might have it to the full. If anyone comes after me and wants to be my disciple, you should deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. These, these are Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person that builds their life on solid rock. Really simple. And then the rabbinic teachers ask, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And what is Jesus' quote? The Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He doesn't say the first part. <laughs> Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What's he summarizing? Ten commandments. Four to love God, six to love others. Back to the simplicity. 
back to the easy understanding of what it means to be a follower of God. It works out really well. I've shared this with you before, but, but it, it matters to me, and I, and I hope it matters to you. I, uh, you know, got out of high school, and I felt a call to preach, and I had sort of articulated that earlier, you know, maybe about my, uh, the beginning of my uh, junior year in high school. I felt some urgency to know what I was going to do the rest of my life. I remember the big, you know, existential crisis as a teenager. Come on, God. I'm 17. I'm going to need to know what I'm doing. Anyway, so felt pretty settled that was what was happening and, and uh, took off for college and, you know, in the process of enrolling in college, I found out that in order to be a minister, you had to have a major in something called religion and so I signed up to be a religion major and my first year went real well. My second year, things got a little more complex. Now, you've got to realize that what I was bringing into this college experience of religions, religious studies was an understanding built in Sunday school that sort of centered around this. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. You know, Jesus loves me. Little ones to him belong. You know, that's, I was bringing that complex theology into the university experience. <laughs> And so my first year, some survey courses, you know, it was okay. You know, this is the Bible. There's 66 books. I was keeping up. And then I enrolled in my very first biblical theology class. And I noticed when I got the syllabus that day, I was super excited because the reading assignments were 15 pages, 18 pages. I'm like, I don't even have to study for this class. <laughs> and then I opened the textbook. I still have the textbook. So I thought I'd copy a paragraph for you. So just remember, Jesus loves me, this I know. This is the depth of my theological understanding. Amidst all the multiplexity and variety of materials, events, and issues, it's our contention that there does exist an eye to this storm of activity. Such a startling point is textually supplied and textually confirmed as the canon's central hope, its ubiquitous concern, and measure of what was theologically significant or normative. While the New Testament eventually referred to this focal point of the Old Testament teaching as the promise, the Old Testament knew it under a constellation of such words as promise, oath, blessing, rest, and seed. It was also known under such formulas as a tripartite saying, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, I will dwell in the midst of you. Or the redemptive self-assertion formula scattered in part or in full 125 times throughout the Old Testament, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That was the introduction in the book. <laughs> Now, I have since come very much to respect and to appreciate the depth of theological study. It turns out the Bible's a big deal, and we ought to treat it very, very, very carefully. But I got to tell you, it was completely overwhelming to me. It, it was at a point where, you know, you're just sort of trying to, to keep this thing in some understanding of practically what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I wonder how many of us in the room today might not have had that experience, but we have made this relationship with Jesus so complex. We have spiritualized it to a point where we don't feel a lot of practical help in our lives. I would just ask you, do you feel that Jesus is terribly concerned and involved in the practical issues that you face every day? Yes. That he cares about where you journey? 
that you find comfort in the fact that he takes interest in that, that, that even a verse like this, my God will supply all of your needs. I'll tell you what I hear a lot. I hear people who will come to see me at the office or call me, and they will say this almost always. I know other people have it worse than me. Well, I'm not sure how that matters. Amen? But what I hear behind that is, my little problem is probably not God's first concern because other people have bigger problems than mine. That's not a very good theology, is it? Pain's not very relative, is it? (laughs) Yeah, so they have a worse problem, so I don't hurt as bad. Does that work for anyone? I I mean, when you're hurting and somebody says, hey! You should just pick up your chin because other people have, there are people who don't have enough to eat. Thank you, I, I feel so much better. It doesn't really work that way, does it? But somewhere inside of us, we think that. I'm not sure I should pray about this because I know other people have bigger problems than this. I'm not, I'm not sure God really cares about this thing that's happening, this practical daily thing and yet he said when you pray pray this way our father who art in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread let's i mean is there a is there a bigger emotional roller coaster than that you know the superb divine kingdom on earth and we need a little bread we need a little bread But I think Jesus is intentionally saying, I I care about these practical things that are going on in your life and in your journey. John tells us a very simple story in 21. This little series, The Hope is Real, is built around our understanding of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, all according to John's gospel. John 21, 1. Afterwards... Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other disciples, were together. I'm going to go out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into a boat, and that night they caught nothing. And early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus, and he called out to them, friends, Haven't you any fish? Just so you know, in the Greek, what he says is, have you caught nothing to eat? Is it true that you've caught nothing to eat? No, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were able to haul in the net because they were were unable to haul in the large number. They were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. It is a very low standard when you clap because I can read. (laughs) Help him, Lord. Please help him. In the south, we say, bless his heart. (laughs) Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say this, he wrapped his outer garment around him because he'd taken it off and he jumped into the water. Let me reset the timing for you. So we have resurrection morning, and we have Mary Magdalene, according to John, according to the Gospels, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joanna, all at the grave early. They see the disturbed tomb. Mary goes to get Peter and John. Peter and John come to the tomb. Uh, They look it over. They don't really understand. They leave. Jesus makes the first post-resurrection appearance to Mary and the women there. 
She goes back and lets them know two men on the road to Emmaus, one named Cleopas, the other we don't know. They walk and Jesus joins them and they have a conversation and finally they recognize Jesus. They rush the seven miles back to Jerusalem. They tell the disciples and while they're telling the disciples, Jesus appears in the room with them. The disciples celebrate. They have a conversation. Thomas isn't there. A week later, God reappears. Uh, Jesus reappears in the upper room. This time, Thomas is there. And we have the scene that we talked about last week. He puts his fingers in the nail prints and is invited to. And now John says, and then Peter decides to go fishing. And we get a rundown. It's Peter, it's James and John, it's Nathaniel, and it's Thomas, and it's a couple other disciples that we don't know. And so we kind of think about this story, and we're not sure how they got up to the northern part, up to the Sea of Galilee on the western shore. It's where they were all from. We, we don't know the circumstances. We're not told that. But sequentially, subsequent to the second appearance of Jesus in the upper room, now they're up at the Sea of Galilee, and they decide to go fishing. And if, if we think about it, I think sometimes we don't kind of get into the details, but, but why are they fishing? You know, well, maybe they're sad. Maybe they're they're, you know, grieving. Maybe it's the fact that they've been afraid and they fled from Jerusalem. But at a very practical level, some things are happening here. Up to this moment, up to the moment that Jesus is arrested and crucified, there have been people who are pouring money into Jesus and into the rabbinic teaching. And so, uh, so the disciples and Jesus have had some means of supporting both themselves and their families. If you know your Disciples' history, you know that Peter was married, he had a wife, he had a mother-in-law, he had responsibilities. But now that Jesus has been crucified, we're in a little period of chaos. It's kind of unclear how that way of living, that way of eating and having your very basic needs, it's been interrupted. Now we know that, but pretty shortly, we're going to see the formation, you know, Acts 2 of the New Testament church. And one of the things that's going to be talked about a lot is forming support for those apostles and teachers. Uh, in fact, the verse that I quoted for you, Philippians 4.19, is rooted in a conversation that Paul is having about support, about somebody has just given a gift for his support because the church is going to get organized and it's going to start passing the offering plate for the very first time. Amen? But it hasn't happened yet. And so in some very practical sense, they go to do what they know how to do so that they can eat so that they can pay some bills, so that they can provide for their families. There's a very practical piece of what's going on here. And they go out at night, which is the tradition, and they begin to fish. And early in the morning, after an entire night where they have caught nothing, a person appears on the shore and shouts to them, Hey, have you caught anything to eat? Pretty practical. Nope. Why don't you put the nets down on the other side? And they do. And there's this massive haul of fish. Now, I think most of us have always thought this is a very, this is a miracle. This is a divine miracle. This is a big deal. Now, John doesn't say it's a miracle. He doesn't mention that. But it's kind of an interesting little sequence of events. And we do a lot of things with it. One of the things we do, and we'll talk about this more next week, because we're going to talk about what happens after this, but... But one of the things that we see is there's a setting here that has some... This is the same space where Jesus first called the disciples when they were fishing and said, I want to make you fishers of men. So we have this sort of scene. It's the original calling almost being recreated. We'll talk about why next week. 
So there's some overtones. But theologians go nuts on this one. I mean, I mean, the implications of what they see in this writing is, it's interesting. Here's one of those commentators. I'll let you just hear what he says. Jesus' sovereignty and supernatural knowledge, which have been seen frequently in the earlier narrative, reappear in this command to them to cast the net to the right side of the boat. Their compliance brings about the miracle of the haul of a huge number of fish. This may well be meant to recall the scriptural prophecy when the life-giving waters flow from the eschatological temple in Jerusalem, according to Ezekiel 47.10 in the Septuagint. What? I, I mean, I could think of a lot of things to connect this to prophetically, but I'm not sure I would have found the eschatological temple in Jerusalem and the great number of fish that Ezekiel, as you may remember, has some wild things going on in his brain. Wild things, prophetic. But we feel an urgency to, to build these things and to seek, and I'm not saying there's not deeper prophetic ties into all of this, but William Barclay says, maybe we've forgotten how first century fishermen fished. It was not uncommon in the first century for fishermen to work in teams. And some of the fishermen were in the boat, and some of the fishermen were on the shore. And the reason that there were fishermen on the shore is because the fishermen on the shore had a perspective and could see things that the fishermen in the boat couldn't see. That, in fact, the fishermen in the boat were often too close to the situation to see what was unfolding around them. They could only see what was immediately in front of them. It was sort of a forest and tree kind of situation. But the spotter on the shore could see disturbances in the surface of the water that indicated schools of fish. So frequently, the spotter on the shore could say to the people in the boat, It's a little left. You need to... Push a little further out. Barclay says, what if what is happening in this moment is the fact that Jesus now in his fourth resurrection appearance has shown up on the shore of the Sea of Galilee with fishermen who are seeking something to eat and provide for their most basic needs. What if he has become one of the team of fishermen to meet the very practical needs of the disciples? Then this story would take on a whole different meaning. And it would seem to me that you and I, who have been invited to a childlike faith, could use someone at a distance from all of the things that we are involved in, who has a perspective and can see things that we can't see. Amen? I mean, where in your journey right now would you say, I can't see the forest for the trees? I'm too close. I'm emotionally too close. I'm relationally too close. I'm spiritually too close. I can't see. And I keep praying that God would do a miracle and fix everything. But maybe what he just wants to do is stand at a distance from us and say, I know you can't see it, but the answer is closer than you think. And you think you need a miracle, but maybe all you need is a little practical help. Maybe you just need to move a step in the right. Maybe it's as simple as throw the net on that side of the boat instead of this side of the boat. And if I got inside this story, this is how I would feel. If I'm one of those disciples that have been fishing all night, 
I would have had some things to say. <laughs> I know none of us do like that. I mean, the very fact that things have not gone well, the sequence of events is not going well. We, we've given up everything to follow this Jesus. What, what are the two men on the road to amaze? We, and we thought he was the one. We've invested all of our lives. We've given up, surrendered. We've done everything we're supposed to do to the best that we could do it. Not perfect, but we, we were willing and we tried. And now look at us. Three years later, we're back fishing. I didn't think I was going to have to clean another smelly fish for the rest of my life. I had given it up. I moved on. I didn't even have the muscles. You know, we had Special Olympics for the first time in four years yesterday. What an awesome day. You know, thanks to everybody that made a part of that. You know what I found out? Special Olympics is way harder than it was four years ago. Anybody else have that experience? Nobody. All right, well, let me, let me explain to you. I was helping out at the softball throw. In four years, my body is used to getting down and staying down. It's not used to getting down and picking things up and standing up again and getting down and measuring things and standing up again and getting down and measuring things and standing up again. So I woke up this morning and guess what? I don't work. I mean, you know, because there's been sort of a, a deterioration of things. And I think those disciples, you know, it's been, it's been a few years since they cast nets over the side of a boat. And they've been pulling wet, heavy, stinky nets into the boat all night long. And now there's somebody on the shore that says, throw them on the other side. I would have been grumbling through the night. Really? You say you love us? You're going to meet all our needs with another empty net? Can't you meet me halfway? What's going on here? I know none of us have ever had those emotions with God. And then a stranger on the shore, why don't you throw the net on the other side? Really? I mean, the sun's up. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm getting nowhere. I have zero interest in trying again. I have zero interest in throwing the net out one more time. Zero. Less than it. I'm angry at the suggestion. <laughs> but somewhere in there, the practical love of Jesus for these men because remember the spotter can't see till the sun comes up I mean the practical help can't be applied until everything's in place that needs to be in place cast your net on the other side and it's full of fish who of us in this room might say right now you know I could use that kind of practical help I could I could invest my belief in a person that can see from a perspective that I cannot see. That's what our faith is. That Jesus and the Holy Spirit can see things we can't see. And he leans over our shoulder and he says, don't give up. Keep going. Yeah, I know. I know it's been all night. I know you're tired. I know you're not functioning well. It's okay. Hang on. Don't give up. Take another step. It might not be a miracle. It might not solve all the problems. It might not be everything you ever hoped or wished. But why don't you just try to... I can see a little reason why you ought to keep going. I can see a little reason why you ought to try one more time. I can see a little reason why I care about this place. This very small, personal, private space in your life. I care about that. And somewhere, if you and I could get back to a practical understanding about who God is and who we are. Jesus loves me 
This I know. Because the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak. But he's strong. God, would you help us? Would you allow us to enter into a practical sort of trust with you? Across this room, online, through the course of this week, folks who are struggling and worried and overwhelmed about some of the things that are going on and they're important things, big, things that we need help with, things that we can't solve on our own, things we can't see on our own. I I pray that this story, this fourth resurrection appearance by Jesus, this this moment when he gets so practically involved in the lives of these disciples, I, I pray, God, that that would be a source of hope and encouragement. Remind us that it's not all about some sort of spiritual thing that's going on. You, you get involved at the most practical levels of our life and our story and our journey, and you intercede with wisdom and understanding that we can't see on our own. We entrust ourselves to you. We invite you into those spaces. And now we pray that you would just hear the response and the prayer as we celebrate and respond to your word. We give you praise and honor and thanks in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. Amen. Will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.